Thanks, Mark, for leading us in that time of worship. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. Ruth chapter 3. As you make your way there, we've been walking through the story of Ruth together on Sunday morning. As you make your way there, I want to tell you about something uh, that we've decided to do, a change that we're making, a shift that's happening uh, coming up very soon. On March 22nd, we will shift our 8 o'clock service, our classic worship service, to 9 a.m., And so for those of you here at 1030, that really doesn't affect you a whole lot in that nothing changes with this service. It remains, our modern service remains at 1030, but our traditional service or classic service that meets at 8 a.m. will be moved to to 9 a.m. The reason for that is primarily is because we believe in that service. We we believe that the the classic method or way of, of worship and that style of worship is something that's still very relevant today for many and uh, believe that that's something that we can continue to use to reach our 301, to reach our, our area and our community. We feel like we have something really unique to offer in that service, a, a classic worship style that uh, in a church that is growing and thriving and missionally advancing, as well as declaring and proclaiming the truth of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's something that's unique here for Uptown. So we're shifting that service to a time that is more convenient for guests and those that we would seek to reach. Also more convenient for those that attend that service because 8 a.m. is a little early. That's why you're here at 1030 primarily. And so we want to shift that to make it more convenient. It will affect one change that will affect you in some ways, some of you in some ways. Our, we will at that moment on March 22nd go to two Sunday school hours on Sunday morning. So we'll have a 915 a Sunday school. Most of you attend a 915 Sunday school class, and it's very likely that your class is staying right where it is. Um, and then we'll also have a 1030 Sunday school hour. That 1030 service, that 1030 Sunday school hour will serve the nine o'clock service. We also have the potential in the days ahead for starting at 8 a.m. a Sunday school if need be. And so there's going to be some shifting in that. We've talked to a lot of our teachers, actually all of our teachers, many of our classes. We've talked to a number of individuals that we felt like this would affect in some ways. And there's been a huge consensus for it. We're going to go for it. We think it's going to be a healthy thing and a good thing um, in that. So most of you probably, if you were in Sunday school this morning, your classes discussed that a little bit. Most of your classes have, have decided what they're going to do on that. One of the things that we're hoping that will help with that early service, that 9 a.m. service, is when we make this change, there, we expect that there would be some of you from this service at 1030 that would make a shift to worshiping at 9 a.m., Maybe because that's your Sunday school class is moving to serve that service. And for others of you, maybe that's the style of worship that you prefer. You're welcome to make that shift and change. We're hoping that out of this, we start some new classes and so forth. Really excited about that, putting both of our worship services at the prime window uh, to reach people and to, to, at a convenient time and engage those that we're trying to reach. A lot of what we do here at this church is for those who are not yet here that we're trying to reach. And so that's why we're making this shift. That'll happen on March 22nd. So you got four weeks, and then we'll make those shift as we rev up and get ready for, for the Easter celebration that we have just after that. Our Tuesday night service is going really well. We're two weeks into that, um, and, uh, and looking forward to, to doing that again this next Tuesday. So Ruth chapter 3, I'll tell you something that happened yesterday that was just a, a phenomenal event for, for the Welch bloodline. Something like this has never happened before in the Welsh bloodline. It was just kind of a monumental moment. Yesterday, I was at practice with my 14-year-old son, Hudson. Hudson loves basketball. Many of you had a chance to meet him, and uh, he, is, he is taller than me. 
And so I don't know where he got that, those jeans from, but he did not get those from me. He's very athletic. He also didn't get those jeans from me um, as well. So he, he loves basketball. That's his sport. And so he's playing spring ball with the team. And uh, yesterday we were at practice. It was a small practice. And, you know, like when they start practice off or before practice starts, the kids get out there and they just kind of shoot around, stretch, warm up, do trick shots and stuff like that. So that was going on. I wasn't paying attention. Um, and I looked up. And my son was hanging from the rim. Now, first of all, I thought, how on earth did he get up there? I mean, did somebody boost him up there? Did somebody lift him? How did he get that high to grab hold of the rim? Because listen, in the history of the Welch bloodline, there has never been a person with the last name Welch that I'm aware of that has ever touched the rim before. Like maybe some of us have, have just grazed the bottom of the net. But to see one of my offspring grabbing the rim, I was like, what on earth is happening here? How did he get up there? So I called him over. I said, Hudson, 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 come here. How did you get up there? Well, I jumped. How long have you been able to do this? And he said, well, a couple, couple months or so. I had no idea, had no clue. Well, can you dunk? Because that would be even more phenomenal. He goes, I don't know, I really haven't tried. I'm working on it. I haven't really tried that yet. One thing you need to know about Hudson is that um, he, he, is, he's, he is a very, it, it's also something that he didn't get from my DNA. He is a very, very humble young man. He, he's not a guy that likes to brag and boast. He doesn't like the spotlight on him. He's, he's a little bit shy. He's very timid. Um, and, and so you, you learn by being around him how impressive and how incredible he is. And so it wasn't something he, you know, he's not walking around, Dad, guess what I can do? Check this out or anything like that. It wouldn't something, be something he would attempt in a game or anything like that. Just very timid. So it was kind of a cool moment. I was like, my kid, my son. Can, can grab the rim and hopefully we'll be able to dunk one uh, someday soon. So practice went on and uh, towards the end of the practice, they were doing a, a scrimmage and, and, uh, and, and running full court scrimmaging. And a uh, coach was really pushing Hudson throughout the game, trying to bring out the beast that's in him and be, be aggressive and all this kind of stuff. Well, well, Hudson gets a steal and has a fast break um, towards, towards the bucket, full court, going down, no one around him. And the coach begins to yell out, dunk it, dunk it dunk it. So my attention has gotten, I'm like, is this the moment? I'm fumbling for my phone right now, trying to catch capture on a video. Is this the moment? So he goes up, he slows down as he gets closer. As he crosses the, uh, the, uh, the, the free throw line, he begins, he picks up the ball, palms it. I mean, I can't even palm a baseball hardly. And he's going towards the bucket, lifts up in the air, and it's like slow motion. I mean, he's just gliding through the air. I mean, tongue out, a whole thing. Maybe that didn't happen. I'm kind of exaggerating just a little bit. He goes up, ball in the air, and he goes to dunk. And he slams the ball against the rim. And it bounces off to the other side of the court. Comes down. Everybody kind of laughs and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there with tears in my eyes the whole time. Because I'm so proud of him in that moment. That's not very characteristic of him to go out, to showboat, and to do something like that. Something bold and aggressive, taking the risk, having never tried that before, 
to just go for it. In Ruth chapter 3, Ruth takes a bold step, a courageous, risky move, and goes for it. We see in this story, as Ruth advances in her relationship with this man, Boaz, her mother-in-law, Naomi, just a few verses before this, has suggested, Ruth, listen, this is one of our redeemers. This is a guy that can marry you, that can reclaim the name of our family, that can do something incredible for her. So she comes up with this incredible plan, this really risky, this really bizarre plan. And Ruth, what we're going to look at today, goes for it. She takes a risk, she acts in courage and selflessness and demonstrates faith. And here's what I want you to understand as we look at this text, before we get to this text, is this, is that faith is an action. Faith is not just something that we have. Faith is something that is displayed in our lifestyle, in our action. Our inward faith that we have comes out and it comes out clearly in boldness and courage and risk. Faith has, as part of its ingredient, an audacity, audaciousness, a boldness, courage, a risk to step into and to do things that we don't have all the answers for, that don't always make sense, that seem a little bit risky. That's what we learn from the action that Ruth takes to pursue a deeper relationship with Boaz. So if you draw your attention to, to Ruth chapter three, we'll find ourselves in verse six. Would you stand in honor of God's word this morning as we look at this, this story? Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor. Just a quick reminder, Boaz was gleaning on the threshing floor, it was night, and Naomi had suggested that she sneak in there and walk through this process to see what would happen in a proposal to Boaz. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down just like Naomi had told her. And at midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this first kindness greater than, this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is, there is a, a redeemer nearer than I. So remain here tonight, and in the morning, if he redeem you, well, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that, the, that a woman came to the threshing floor and he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it out and she, he measured out six measures of barley, put it on her and she went into the city. And when she came um, into the city um, 
to her mother-in-law, she said, how did, how did it fare, my daughter? Tell me what happened. And then she told her all that this man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for, he said, you must not go back empty-handed um, to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You can be seated. What Naomi has proposed to Ruth to do and what Ruth follows through with is an incredibly risky action to take. It's risky in the sense that it's a risk on, on, uh, on Ruth's safety and security as well as her reputation. A woman traveling in the night in secret to a group of isolated men on a hillside or in a barn somewhere, men who are exceptionally in good spirits, who are very merry and happy. They've worked really hard. It's been a great harvest. They've eaten. They've drunk. And they're happy. And approaches a woman. That's the proposition that, that Naomi has told Ruth. And beyond that, she's supposed to keep herself secret. No one knows she's there. Find out where this man Boaz lies down. And when he falls asleep, go lay at his feet, uncover his feet, lay there, and then he'll tell you what to do. This is a risky move. It's a, it's a courageous move. Because ultimately, we don't know what could happen in this situation. A lot of things could have gone wrong in this. Somewhere along the way in traveling to the threshing floor, to that place, she could have been, she could have been caught or apprehended or someone to say, where are you going? What are you doing out this late? Why are you dressed so nice with perfume and, and in the secret of night? When she got there, these, these men are exceptionally good spirits and it would not have been uncommon in that day and time in a setting like this for there to have been other types of women that would have approached a scenario and situation like this. Some that would have been there to, to seek the pleasure of these men. They could have perceived her presence there like that. For that matter, this man she's proposing to could have perceived it that way. And we know Boaz is a good man, but man has flesh. What, how would he respond? Would he take advantage? Would he remain that character? There's so much that it could have gone wrong in this story and in this picture. It's so risky. It's so bizarre. It's so strange. But it's courageous. And it's risky. To go out on a limb, trusting the character of this man, the providence and plan of God, that something good would happen. And to leave the matter up into the hands of this man. All she's supposed to do is go and lay there, and when he wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. This required courage and risk from Ruth. She didn't know all that what would happen. She didn't know what the next day would look like, what the outcome of this would look like, what Boaz would say. Would this work? She had no idea. She didn't have anything to weigh it on. She couldn't go and say, did this work for you? Did, did you do this? How did this turn out? This is a proper manner. She didn't get a book out and say, wedding proposals, this is plan number 165. This one works 95% of the time. There was so much risk, so many uncertainties, so many questions that she could have been asking. 
Mom, why do you want me to do this? Mom, what am I supposed to do if he says this? Or, or what, if, what if I get caught? Or, or, or what if he asks me this question? Or all these questions that she doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know how it's going to turn out. She trusts the advice and counselor, counsel that the godly person in her life gave her. She trusts God. She ventures out to the only step that she knows, and she takes the risk. Courage and risk are vital parts of living a life of faith. There's all sorts of scenarios in the Bible that we see people demonstrate faith that do very, very courageous and risky things. Things that they don't know the outcome from, risky things that make no sense. I remember the story that's not too distant from this story, the the story of Rahab and the spies. Rahab was a prostitute. The spies were in trouble. She brings them into her house. What would have everyone thought of these men going into the home of a prostitute? What would this woman been thought of bringing these outside men inside, hiding them and concealing them. But all that was a demonstration of faith through the courage and the boldness and the risk that they took. Think of David. There's so many circumstances with David. Just a few pages over from this, where David stepped out, ventured out in faith with bold, courageous, risky move. I mean, there's one story where he, he acts like he's out of his mind, like he's insane. And then there's the stories of the New Testament church, people like the Apostle Paul. Paul, who had a bold gospel, a courageous gospel, who boldly and proclaimed that gospel in some of the most bizarre places, time and time again, every city that he would go to, he would go to the synagogue, the place of Jewish worship, and he would proclaim the Jewish Messiah to those people. And the outcome was almost always the same. They didn't like it. They rejected him. Many times over, Paul would be beaten up and thrown out, kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of the city, but he kept doing it, even though the outcome was going to be the same. The same thing was going to happen from place to place to place. And then he got also bold, going to, going to, to Mars Hill, to a place of philosophers, and setting up with these wise, learned people and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to them. And then going on a trip to Jerusalem, knowing that in Jerusalem, if he goes back, it's going to mean his head. Because they put a, a ransom out for him, basically. And there's going to be this, this, this plot to kill him. And as he heads in that city, there are people looking to kill him. So much risk, so much courage. And then he calls to meet with Caesar. And he's still on this long journey of prison, hoping for an opportunity to talk to the talk, do, top dog in the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bold, courageous, risky moves that were all demonstrations of faith. Trusting God demands that we venture beyond comfort and the known, the well acquainted with, but to act in courage and boldness towards the next step He gives us. Yet many Christians never do this because I want to make sure of things. We want to have everything together. We want to make sure that, is this going to be okay? Is this going to turn out all right? We want to weigh the, the pluses and the minuses, the, the positives and the negatives. And so long as there's enough positives here, there's, they outweigh the others, and it, it makes kind of more analytical sense, then, then we'll venture out. Or we're so afraid of going in the wrong direction 
that we go in no direction at all. We're so afraid of failure. We're so afraid of messing up that the failure factor is a fear factor for us. And so because of that fear, we don't, we don't venture out. We don't, we don't trust God for the big things and do the risky things. Or we're so tied to our comforts and our expectations. Like we don't wanna lose this. We, we've got a game plan. And if we venture out, if we follow God in this direction, if we obey in this way, or if we demonstrate faith towards this, then this could mess up everything that we've built, we've worked so hard for. This doesn't go towards our 10 year or 15 year or 20 year plan. Faith often means it doesn't all make sense. That the bottom line doesn't always match. That the positives don't always outweigh the negatives. And that what's going to happen is, is oftentimes answered by, I don't know. You and I need to stop living our lives for God so timidly and be willing to trust God and take risks for God. The Bible gives all types of permission for us to venture out with boldness and with faith, provided that our lives are walking with the Lord, provided that we are in tune with his Holy Spirit and provided that we desire to go his way and provided that we are being guided by the word of God. To be willing to go for it. There's so much in this journey with the Lord that requires us to go for it. His plan and his will for your life requires that sometimes you go for it. You trust him and you venture out. You get out of the boat, you step onto the sea and you go for it. You open your mouth and you speak up and you go for it. Or you do things that no one in your family's ever done before or, or, no, or people in our society and culture don't necessarily do. You go for it. Trust God to venture out. What are you going for? What in your life right now could you identify that this decision is a decision of faith? It's a decision that I don't know how this is gonna work out. If God doesn't come through in this, then I will fail in this. Because that's the situation for Ruth in this circumstance. If God's providence doesn't hold true, and if he doesn't guide this whole situation, Ruth could be looked at as a harlot. Ruth could be looked at as a woman of the night. Ruth could be rejected and everything miss out. She could go back. Boaz could completely reject her and send her back to where she was in chapter 1. What in your life is about faith? Or are you living on a scale of being safe and comfortable, cold and stuck in a refrigerated Christian life? What about our church? You know, you open up to the book of Acts. Listen, the early church went for it. The moment they had the Holy Spirit of God placed in them in Acts chapter 2, they went after it. They began to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ everywhere. It tells us they went from house to house. They stood in large marketplaces. They preached the word. And you know what happened when they took that bold risk 
of preaching the word vocally and out loud, healing people and helping people. You know what happened? People didn't like it. All of a sudden, Peter and John realized if we do this, people are going to beat us. They found themselves getting rejected more almost than they got accepted. They got beat. They were thrown into prison. They were arrested. And all of a sudden, there was pushback towards what they were doing. Not everybody was happy about it. Thank goodness it wasn't a Baptist church. It was a lost world. And not everyone was happy about what they were doing. And so they had a decision to make. Here they are. We're getting pushback. People aren't liking this. Our families are rejecting this. They're threatening us. They're telling us if we continue to do this, it won't be good for us. And they have the authority and power to do just what they did to Jesus to us. What are we going to do? I'm glad you asked that. Acts chapter 4. They go to the Lord in prayer about it. In verse 29, here's what they, what they say. And now, Lord, look upon these, these threats. Lord, look upon all the threats that are being weighed against us, all the negatives, all the bad news, all the bottom lines that don't match up, all the things that don't make sense, all these people that are threatening to kill us. Lord, look upon their hearts, their threats, and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. You can't follow Christ without boldness. Your faith cannot be active without a willingness to be courageous, risky, and bold. The early church went for it. Why don't we? John Wesley, in speaking of the danger of adventurous faith, said this, I'd rather have one church leader so on fire that I have to constantly cool him down than 10 unenthused men who constantly have to waste, I have to waste energy warming up. Where are the people that are being willing to be bold and courageous to take risks the people who are willing to go across the office and engage a conversation with a lost coworker to lead them to Christ. The people who are willing to reach out to their neighbors who are different from them or who they don't know yet and get to know them. Even to do something as bold as just simply invite them to church. Where are the people who are bold enough to go against the grain and not repay evil for evil? People bold enough willing to forgive. People bold enough willing to serve and to go out and to do something that, listen, rich white people don't do. The adventure, the courage, the boldness. Are we more concerned about stepping into the unknown with the gospel of Jesus Christ to reach the lost? Or about keeping peace and not offending anyone? That's a question for you, but that's also a question for our church. 
Listen, there are 110,000 people or more living within three miles of where you're sitting right now who every day are driving themselves straight to hell. Let us not be people who just sit in our pews, who have to be begged to, be, to serve, who tippy-toe around traditions and argue about stuff that God doesn't care about and question motives and ideas. Let's go for it. Rather than making sure that all the saved people are happy, why don't we concern ourselves more with the lost people who are but a breath away from hell? Because when the, when the saints care more about the sacred cows of the saints than the lost souls, that God's called them to, we are not acting in faith. To be, be honest with you, there should be no sacred cows except for the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that it reveals. And that's, that's what I love about what God is stirring in our church, about some of the things that are happening. I, I love the fact that we, we just went for it. We, we're, we're trying a new worship service, and we start one on Tuesday night to reach the 60,000, 35 and under that live within three miles of here. Let me be honest with you. I don't know if it's going to work. But by faith, we're trying I love the idea, the bold plan of let's use our parking lot to create a farmer's market and to create an environment and place where we can rub shoulders every Saturday with people that we don't normally get the opportunity to provide a service for them, something that they would enjoy and like and be able to love on them and care for them and care for our community and get to know people that would possibly lead to us having the opportunity to maybe see them in church some Sunday or share the gospel of Jesus Christ to get, get along. Listen, there's going to be people that come to our farmer's market that aren't always like us. But we'll have the opportunity. I, I love the idea of doing that. I love the idea of a group of people that are going out on a regular basis and just prayer walking our community and asking God to work in this building and in this apartment complex all around us. The, the new women's Bible studies that are starting, the, the changing of times, just trying to do new things, to, 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 to step out in risk and boldness. Listen, the truth of the matter is we haven't done the analytics, okay? We don't have all the dollars covered for all this stuff. And we may fall flat on our face, but I would rather fall flat on our face trying to reach lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ than sit comfortably while they all go to hell. Amen. And what about you in your neighborhood? What about you in your workplace? What about you in your marriage and with your children? To take bold steps of action, of faith, to align yourself with the will of God more, to be willing to venture out. Listen, we, we send and we celebrate missionaries that go across the world. And every one of those missionaries had to come to a place in their life where they were willing to take a risk and be bold and courageous and leave the comforts of American life behind and their families behind and be willing to pick up and to go across the world. That is bold, risky faith. But let me tell you something, it is not just for those people. 
that we can pray for in sin. It's what God is calling of us each and every day. And so Ruth ventures out. She steps out in boldness and courage and faith. Trust God. Because faith is a bold action. But it's also, we see here, a selfless action. In verse 8, she does just as, as she is supposed to. She comes and she lays at his feet. Plan goes off just as it's supposed to go. There she is laying, and we don't know what time she got there, maybe about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. She lays there. I can imagine she probably doesn't fall asleep. And it tells us in verse 8, at about midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? Now, to knock off any sexualized American conception that you have of this situation, this is anything but a sensual situation. Think about it. Boaz is likely an older man. He's been working all day. He's eaten a big meal. He is tired. He is, what do older men who, are, who have eaten a big meal who are sleeping really hard, what do they do? They, thank you. Sorry your husband does that. They snore. And so I can imagine just kind of using some, some pastoral privilege here that what she's hearing for a few hours is I can imagine Ruth is going through her head thinking like, do I really want to do this? He doesn't know I'm here. I can slip out. I don't know that I want to live with this every night for the rest of my life. We, haven't, we don't have sleep apnea machines yet or anything like that. I don't know what we're going to do about this. And so somewhere around midnight, his feet get a little cold. And it wakes him up. It startles him. Something's cold. Wakes up. You ever just woken up in the middle of the night, startled by something? How do you respond? What is going on? Oh my, no, what's that? I, mean, I can imagine this guy is groggy. What, what is going on? What's happening here? Who are you? I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Please be my redeemer. Now she goes offline when she says that, by the way. And Naomi said, just lay there and he'll tell you what to do. But, but she takes the liberty and she goes beyond, she, she, she answers and I'm, I'm Ruth and will you, will you lay, lay your cover up over me and redeem me? I'm here for that. She steps out, she shows even more courage, more risk, more boldness in just that small statement that she makes to this sleepy, groggy, startled man who probably wasn't expecting to wake up to a marriage proposal. When he went to bed, it was a bunch of men. And he wakes up to this young woman proposing marriage to him. And it works. His response is seen in verse 10. May, may you be blessed by the Lord because this last kindness, which means what you're doing right now, the kindness that you're showing right now is even greater than the kindness you have already shown. Well, what is he talking about there? Well, on the one hand, 
the original kindness that he speaks of, the first kindness, is the kindness that she has shown to Naomi, her mother-in-law, to, to leave her family, to leave her land, to leave her people, and to cling herself to Naomi, to care for Naomi, to go out and work every day, to provide for her widowed mother-in-law, which she was not obligated. She had the opportunity to be released from that, but yet she clings to herself, not only to Naomi, but also to the name of Naomi's husband, and there is a kindness in the fact that here she is seeking a redeemer who would redeem the name of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her former husband, her deceased husband, Malon. She has given her life to extend the name of a family of the people of God. Wow. But this new kindness, Boaz now experiences personally for the first time. And that's why it's greater because he personally experiences it. And the kindness is this. Ruth, this is where we probably make the assumption that Ruth was a young, attractive woman because he says, you could have married other men. There are younger men out there that you could have married and you're choosing me, which we would make the assumption means he's not a younger man. He's an older man who just has not ever gotten married. You, you, you had all these young men that you could, you, could, you could go after. Some that would be rich and some that would be poor. But you, you go after me? Have you seen me? Did you hear me snoring? Wow. You mean you're going to give me the opportunity to pursue you and redeem you? What kindness is that? Ruth shows us. Faith, the act of faith is selfless. Nowhere along the way did she do any of this for her own good. It was for the good of other people. She showed kindness to this man. She shows kindness to Naomi. She acts in faith and she is put on the back burner. She's put aside. And then Boaz from this place begins to demonstrate an act in faith by showing kindness to her. He basically says, absolutely, yes, I'll marry you, but we have a problem. And the problem is, I'm not the only redeemer. In fact, Ruth, to be honest with you, I am not the closest redeemer, which Boaz didn't have to say. Nobody was just busting down the door to redeem this family. And so it would have been likely known that, or thought of that the other people that would have been redeemers had the opportunity to, 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 to bring them back into the family and bring the land back and all the other things that would come with that uh, had basically said, not me. I hope nobody notices this. I hope they don't ask. But out of his character, Boaz says, listen, I want to do it, but, I, but we got to do this Right? I have to give this other man an opportunity to redeem you. And I know that you've requested that of me, but out of integrity and righteousness and being a good man, I have to go to this kinfolk and ask him if he would let you. And he has to refuse the opportunity. And if he refuses the opportunity, you better believe I'm gonna marry you. But we have to do this the right way. Even Boaz demonstrating his faith by selflessness. He could have taken it right then but he puts it aside and demonstrates selfless. So listen, faith is an action of boldness. So let's be courageous 
Let's be willing to take risk. And let's be selfish, selfless. What cripples the faith of American Christianity and American Christians like you and I is that we always want to know what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this? What's God going to do for me? How is this going to please me? How is this going to get to my goals, my ways, my desires? Faith is a bold action. So be courageous, risky, selfless, and go for it. So there we have the two women and now one man waiting to figure out what's going to happen. It's really funny what happens in verse 14. She lays in the morning and makes sure, Boaz makes sure that she awakes and she gets out there before anyone is recognized. They don't want any questions. He doesn't want anything to tamper this whole situation, anyone to think the wrong thing about, about Ruth. He didn't send her out that night because of safety and security. He let her stay that night to protect her. And then he sends her out to protect her reputation. And before she leaves, to give her assurance of his desires, he says, hey, hey, open your coat. And so likely she's got this big coat on. She, she, she pulls it up. He just pours grain in it. And he goes, listen, I just want you to have this as a sign that, hey, yeah, I want to marry you, which is so bizarre. Like today we give roses and we give diamond rings and stuff like that. He gives her a bag of grain. How sweet. Here she is going back with her bag of grain to her mother-in-law. How'd it go, honey? <laughs> well, he gave me this bag of grain. I think that's a good thing. And Naomi, verse 18, replies, Oh, yeah, it is. You wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest. But we'll settle the matter today. What does that mean? Baby, he is hot to trot. Hook, line, and sinker. You got him. Ruth, a poor foreigner, humbles herself at this man's feet. And he redeems her. Twelve hundred years later, a descendant of the marriage that would happen in the next chapter rose from a grave. And he looks at people like you, spiritually poor, foreign to God, in rebellion against him, and invites us to humble ourselves by faith at his feet, and he'll redeem us. Faith is a bold, action. So be courageous, risky, and selfless. And let's learn how the matter
turns out. Let's pray.